In case you haven't noticed, I'm a middle-aged plus woman. And as a consequence, <laughs> as a consequence, I know the location of bathrooms in Walgreens, Walmarts, Kroger, and my favorite restaurants. Hang on, I'm going somewhere with this. Before exiting any of these bathrooms, there are signs plastered, usually in more than one place, advising me to wash my hands. Some of them are more direct and say in big bold letters, did you wash your hands as you prepare to open the door? This practical hygienic advice is not what Mark is writing about in chapter 7. The Pharisees are admonishing Jesus and his disciples for not following a small part of a comprehensive holiness code that regulated every aspect of personal and community life for Jews 3,500 years ago. The purity laws of Leviticus, chapters 11 through 26, for example, describe purity rituals on everything from food to childbirth to prohibition against contact with dead humans or animals to laws regarding bodily discharges, agricultural guidelines, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships. Why so many rules? Some of these purity laws encoded common sense or moral ideas that we still follow today. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated its people from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, at their very best, the purity laws ritualized an exhortation from Yahweh. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. When Psalm 15 for this week asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? The right response is that only people who are pure may approach a holy God. We don't know how much ordinary first century Jews maintained ritual purity, but the Pharisees about whom we read so much in the Gospels certainly did. Throughout the Gospels, they criticized Jesus for his flagrant disregard for ritual purity. Remember, Jesus the Jew touched a leper. His disciples didn't fast. He ignored Sabbath laws. He touched a woman with a discharge and handled a corpse and healed two Gentiles. In the Gospel this week, perhaps the most important of all the purity texts, Mark recounts a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees about food purity. The Pharisees complained that Jesus' disciples ate with unclean hands. But notice the central accusation in this clash. The Pharisees considered Jesus and his followers as ritually unclean sinners who flaunted God's clear law. Given human propensity to justify ourselves and to scapegoat others, the purity laws lent themselves to a spiritual stratification or hierarchy between the ritually clean, who considered themselves to be close to God, and the unclean, who were shunned as impure sinners who were far from God. Remember being told, godliness is next to holiness. Instead of expressing the holiness of God, ritual purity became a means of excluding people, 
considered dirty, polluted, or contaminated. Jesus ignored this in word and deed and actively demolished these distinctions of ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. We know that the Jews in the Middle East had for centuries been surrounded and infiltrated by paganism, both as a cultural force and as military might. So reinforcing the purity code at every chance made them powerful language of cultural symbols. Their usage screamed to their pagan neighbors, we are Jews, we are different, we don't live like you do. But here's the crux. What if the kingdom of God meant throwing open the doors of God's people to anyone and everyone who would repent and believe? What would happen to the symbols then? Jesus' basic point is that purity laws, including food laws, don't actually touch the real human problem. And that is what the kingdom of God addresses. Behind this is the strong sense already here in Jesus and hammered out in the early church that there's a new conclusion, a new fulfillment. So just as the scriptures spoke of purity and set up codes as signposts to it, here was Jesus offering the reality itself. N.T. Wright put it this way, When you arrive at the destination, you don't need the signpost anymore. Not because they were worthless, but precisely because they were correct. This doesn't mean we can casually set aside bits we don't like or understand. When things are set aside, as the purity laws are here, it's not because they're irrelevant, but because the deeper truth to which they pointed has now arrived. Everything the scriptures were getting at reached a peak in Jesus Christ. From now on, everything is different. Notice that the list of intentions in verses 21 and 22 have everything to do with how we live out the law of God concretely in relation to one another. In other words, he is not teaching his disciples to disregard embodied practices. He is instead focusing their attention on the most important embodied practices. Those that display faithfulness, self-restraint, honesty, compassion. So in our gospel reading today, Jesus and the author of Mark's gospel throw down a radical challenge. Defilement does not come from the outside, but from the inside. Aren't we still having that debate? We are still contesting issues of ritual purity as can be seen in our debates over homosexuality, whom we welcome, who we welcome and exclude from our churches, and the way we evaluate people by the clothes they wear. The list is almost endless. Jesus and Mark remain radical even to this day. Clearly, Jesus does not dismiss the issue of defilement as insignificant. He does not declare the Mosaic law unimportant. He disagrees with these scribes and Pharisees' interpretation of certain laws. He reasserts the law's basic concern to be about restraining evil and avoiding defilement. Yet here's the problem for us human beings. Evil and abuse stem from places rather deeply embedded within ourselves. We have met the enemy and it is us. 
When the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus with their hand-washing concerns, I don't think we need to look at them as borderline OCD. Remember, Israel had long since been invaded and occupied, a conquered colony on the fringe of the empire. Pressured to conform to Roman control, threatened to corrode being a faithful Jew. Under such oppressive conditions, you do whatever it takes to preserve religious identity and fidelity. You adopt little signs of resistance, practices to show your true allegiance. Those signs seem rather small to us now, but when you're stripped of power, even something slim can be a wedge, leverage to assert who you are and what you do. Sorry, pages are messed up. Back on track. Even a small deed like hand washing carries a message that you are Yahweh's people. So when the Pharisees and the scribes asked why Jesus' disciples did not wash, the issue was more than ritual obedience or even political loyalty. It was the question of what leads to lasting life, divine promise or human expediency. And when Jesus replied to that challenge, first to those leaders, then the crowds, then his disciples, he never disputed his premise. Instead, he amplified it, sharpened it, made it even more troubling. Purity and defilement are not a throwback to ancient days. They appear today in all the shrewd choices we make about whom we'll embrace or avoid, choices about what's good for us or threatens our survival. Jesus took this choice seriously, but then he raised it to a new level with a dangerous twist. Maybe trust in God leads right into defilement. Maybe faithful living calls for associating with the unclean. Maybe that's why the very next place Jesus went after this story was over the border with unmerited healing for an unworthy foreigner and her diseased daughter. Out of love for God, we want to remain undefiled, keep our distance from all that might be unclean. But Jesus died as one of the impure, the sign of a different love, a holy love poured out for the soiled and humiliated of our world, including us. God's love embraces us precisely in our impurity and defilement. I remember growing up in a house where certain activities on Sunday were frowned upon. The Sabbath was holy, so you didn't work like mow the lawn or wash clothes. And you certainly didn't ask to go to a movie. The thought was that the stricter one's approach to Sabbath observance, the more dedicated one was to the Lord. But even today, most any church culture will develop certain outward actions as special marks of inner piety. I stop every time. There have been few exceptions based on traffic behind me at the intersection of Oak and I-40 when I pull off coming from Little Rock to give whomever is there some money. It's just a little amount. I always try to talk to them briefly, and we each say 
God bless you. Last week, Lynn asked me to pray for her. What am I doing? Am I being that hypocrite that feels good inside for doing some little part? What about my heart? What do I really feel? Do I feel superior to Lynn? Sure I do. Do I offer to go eat with her as Jesus would have done? Am I reinforcing the divisions that we feel? It's easy for me to look down on the moral rigidity of the Pharisees. But honestly, am I really so different? Do I fixate on the forms of piety I can put on display for others to applaud instead of cultivating the secret and hidden life of God deep within my soul? Do we sometimes behave as if we've, we're finished products with nothing new to discover about the Holy Spirit's movements in the world? Do we set up religious litmus tests for each other and decide who's in and who's out based on conditions that have nothing to do with Jesus' open-hearted love and hospitality? I hope not. I pray that you and I don't do that. But it is not easy. It doesn't matter what specific forms our legalism takes. In some churches it centers around jewelry and clothing. In others it comes down to exalting one worship style over another. In still others it means policing the political affiliations and allegiances of parishioners. In some faith communities the lines in the sand have to do with women clergy or gay marriage or racial justice or economic equality. The forms vary, but in the end, legalism in any guise deadens us towards God and towards our neighbors. It makes us stingy and small-minded, cowardly and anxious. It strips away our joy and robs us of peace. It causes us, in Jesus' words from Matthew, to honor God with our lips, but to worship Him in vain. So what can we do? How can we honor God with our whole selves? How can we discern whether a tradition is life-giving or not? Jesus gives his listeners this advice. Notice what comes out of you. Notice what fruit your adherence to tradition bears. Does your version of holiness lead to hospitality? To inclusion? To freedom? Does it cause your heart to open wide with compassion? Does it lead other people to feel loved and welcomed at God's table? Does it enable you to take another step forward in your spiritual development? One of my favorite writers on the web is Debbie Thomas, who writes for Journey with Jesus. She says that we can see Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees as an invitation. It's an invitation to consider what is really sacred and firm in our spiritual lives. It's an invitation to go deeper, past lip service, past tradition, past piety. It's a chance to practice real religion. A religion of love for the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the outcast. It's not a safe religion or an easy one. It's a religion of the whole heart, more precious than anything else on this earth. Pure or impure? Clean 
are unclean. It is not a matter of ritual observance or of outward appearance, but of what is going on deep inside of us. Perhaps John Milton put it best of all. In Paradise Lost, Book 3, he says, For neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible, except to God alone. Amen.